Part twenty of Volume two of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume two of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Lucullus, Part three. Lucullus pushed on in pursuit as far as Tolora, whence, four days before, Mithridates had succeeded in escaping to Granus, in Armenia. Then he turned aside. After subduing the Chaldeans and the Tiberini, he occupied lesser Armenia, reducing its fortresses and cities, and then sent Appius to Tigranes with a demand for Mithridates. He himself, however, came to Amesis, which was still holding out against the siege. Its success in this was due to Callimachus, its commander, who by his acquaintance with mechanical contrivances, and his power to employ every resource which the siege of a city demands, had given the Romans the greatest annoyance. For this he afterwards paid the penalty. But at this time he was simply outgeneraled by Lucullus, who made a sudden attack at just that time of day when Callimachus was accustomed to draw his soldiers off from the ramparts and give them a rest. When the Romans had got possession of a small part of the wall, Callimachus abandoned the city, first setting fire to it with his own hands, either because he begrudged the visitors their booty, or because his own escape was thus facilitated. For no one paid attention to those who were sailing away, but when the flames increased mightily and enveloped the walls, the soldiers made ready to plunder the houses. Lucullus, out of pity for the perishing city, tried to bring aid from outside against the fire, and gave orders to extinguish the flames, but no one paid any heed to his commands. The soldiers all clamoured for the booty, and shouted, and clashed their shields and spears together, until he was forced to let them have their way, hoping that he could at least save the city itself from the flames. But the soldiers did just the opposite. Ransacking everything by torchlight, and carrying lights about everywhere, they destroyed most of the houses themselves. When Lucullus entered the city at daybreak he burst into tears, and said to his friends that he had often deemed Sulla happy, and that on that day more than ever he admired the man's good fortune, in that when he wished to save Athens he had the power to do so. But upon me, he said, who have been so eager to imitate his example, heaven has devolved the reputation of Mummius. However, as far as circumstances allowed, he endeavoured to restore the city. The fire, indeed, had been quenched by showers which fell providentially, just as the city was captured, and most of what the soldiers had destroyed he rebuilt himself before his departure. He also received into the city those of the Amenses who had fled, and settled there any other Greeks who so desired, and added to the city's domain a tract of a hundred and twenty stadia. The city was a colony of Athens, founded in that period when her power was at its height, and she controlled the sea. This was the reason why many who wished to escape the tyranny of Aristian at Athens sailed to Amesis, settled there, and became citizens. Flying from evils at home, they got the benefit of greater evils abroad. But those of them who survived were well clothed by Lucullus, and sent back home with a present of two hundred drachmas apiece. Tyrannio, the grammarian, was also taken prisoner at this time. Marina asked to have him as his own prize, and on getting him, formally gave him his liberty, therein making an illiberal use of the gift which he had received. For Lucullus did not think it meet that a man so esteemed for his learning should first become a slave, and then be set at liberty. To give him a nominal liberty was to rob him of the liberty to which he was born. 
but this was not the only case in which Marina was found to be far inferior to his commander in nobility of conduct. Lucullus now turned his attention to the cities in Asia, in order that, while he was at leisure from military enterprises, he might do something for the furtherance of justice and law. Through long lack of these, unspeakable and incredible misfortunes were rife in the province. Its people were plundered and reduced to slavery by the tax-gatherers and money-lenders. Families were forced to sell their comely sons and virgin daughters, and cities their votive offerings, pictures, and sacred statues. At last men had to surrender to their creditors and serve themselves as slaves, but what preceded this was far worse. Tortures of rope, barrier, and horse, standing under the open sky in the blazing sun of summer, and in winter being thrust into mud or ice. Slavery seemed by comparison to be a disburdenment and peace. Such were the evils which Lucullus found in the cities, and in a short time he freed the oppressed from all of them. In the first place he ordered that the monthly rate of interest should be reckoned at one per cent, and no more. In the second place he cut off all interest that exceeded the principal. Third, and most important of all, he ordained that the lender should receive not more than the fourth part of his debtor's income, and any lender who added interest to principal was deprived of the whole. Thus, in less than four years' time, the debts were all paid, and the properties restored to their owners unencumbered. This public debt had its origin in the twenty thousand talents which Sulla had laid upon Asia as a contribution, and twice this amount had been paid back to the money-lenders. Yet now, by reckoning usurious interest, they had brought the total debt up to a hundred and twenty thousand talents. These men accordingly considered themselves outraged, and raised a clamour against Lucullus at Rome. They also bribed some of the tribunes to proceed against him, being men of great influence, who had got many of the active politicians into their debt. Lucullus, however, was not only beloved by the peoples whom he had benefited, nay, other provinces also longed to have him sent over them, and felicitated those whose good fortune it was to have such a governor. Appius Clodius, who had been sent to Tigranes, Clodius was a brother of her who was then the wife of Lucullus, was at first conducted by the royal guides through the upper country by a route needlessly circuitous and long. But when a freedman of his, who was a Syrian, told him of the direct route, he left the long one which was being trickily imposed upon him, bade his barbarian guides a long farewell, and within a few days crossed the Euphrates and came to Antioch by Daphne. Then, being ordered to await Tigranus there, the king was still engaged in subduing some cities of Phoenicia, he gained over many of the princes who paid but a hollow obedience to the Armenian. One of these was Zarbienus, the king of Gordina. He also promised many of the enslaved cities, when they sent to confer with him secretly, the assistance of Lucullus, although for the present he bade them keep quiet. Now the sway of the Armenians was intolerably grievous to the Greeks. Above all else, the spirit of the king himself had become pompous and haughty in the midst of his great prosperity. All the things which most men covet and admire, he not only had in his possession, but actually thought that they existed for his sake. For though he had started on his career with small and insignificant expectations, he had subdued many nations, humbled the Parthian power as no man before him had done, and filled Mesopotamia with Greeks whom he removed in great numbers from Cilicia and from Cappadocia, and settled anew. He also removed from their wonted haunts the nomadic Arabians, and brought them to an adjacent settlement, that he might employ them in trade and commerce. Many were the kings who waited upon him, 
and four, whom he always had about him, like attendants or bodyguards, would run on foot by their master's side when he rode out, clad in short blouses, and when he sat transacting business would stand by with their arms crossed. This altitude was thought to be the plainest confession of servitude, as if they had sold their freedom and offered their persons to their master disposed for suffering rather than for service. Appius, however, was not frightened or astonished at all this pomp and show, but as soon as he obtained an audience, told the king plainly that he was come to take back Mithridates, as an ornament due to the triumph of Lucullus, or else to declare war against Tigranes. Although Tigranes made every effort to listen to this speech with a cheerful countenance and a forced smile, he could not hide from the bystanders his discomfiture at the bold words of the young man. It must have been five and twenty years since he had listened to a free speech. That was the length of his reign, or rather of his wanton tyranny. However, he replied to Appius that he would not surrender Mithridates, and that if the Romans began war he would defend himself. He was vexed with Lucullus for addressing him in his letter with the title of king only, and not king of kings, and accordingly in his reply he would not address Lucullus as imperator. But he sent splendid gifts to Appius, and when he would not take them added more besides. Appius finally accepted a single bowl from among them, not wishing his rejection of the king's offers to seem prompted by any personal enmity, but sent back the rest, and marched off with all speed to join the imperator. Up to this time Tigranes had not deigned to see Mithridates, nor speak to him, although the man was allied to him by marriage, and had been expelled from such a great kingdom. Instead he had kept him at the farthest remove possible, in disgrace and costumely, and he had suffered him to be held a sort of prisoner in marshy and sickly regions. Now, however, he summoned him to his palace with marks of esteem and friendship. There, in secret conference, they strove to allay their mutual suspicions at the expense of their friends, by laying the blame upon them. One of these was Metrodorus of Sepus, a man of agreeable speech and wide learning, who enjoyed the friendship of Mithridates in such a high degree that he was called the king's father. This man, as it seems, had once been set as an ambassador from Mithridates to Tigranes, with a request for aid against the Romans. On this occasion Tigranes asked him, But what is your own advice to me, Metrodorus, in this matter? Whereupon Metrodorus, either with an eye to the interests of Tigranes, or because he did not wish Mithridates to be saved, said that as an ambassador he urged consent, but that as an adviser he forbade it. Tigranes disclosed this to Mithridates, not supposing, when he told him, that he would punish Metrodorus past all healing. But Metrodorus was at once put out of the way. Then Tigranes repented of what he had done, although he was not entirely to blame for the death of Metrodorus. He merely gave an impulse, as it were, to the hatred which Mithridates already had for the man. For he had long been secretly hostile to him, as was seen from his private papers when they were captured, in which there were directions that Metrodorus, as well as others, be put to death. Accordingly, Tigranes gave the body of Metrodorus a splendid burial, sparing no expense upon the man when dead, although he had betrayed him when alive. Amphicrates, the rhetorician, also lost his life at the court of Tigranes, if, for the sake of Athens, we may make some mention of him too. It is said that when he was exiled from his native city, he went to Seleucia on the Tigris, and that when the citizens asked him to give lectures there, he treated their invitation with contempt, arrogantly remarking that a stew-pan could not hold a dolphin. Removing thence, he attached himself to Cleopatra, the daughter of Mithridates and wife of Tigranes, but speedily fell into disfavor, 
and being excluded from intercourse with Greeks, starved himself to death. He also received honorable burial at the hands of Cleopatra, and his body lies at Sapha, as a place in those parts is called. Lucullus, after filling Asia full of law and order, and full of peace, did not neglect the things which minister to pleasure and win favor, but during his stay at Ephesus gratified the cities with processions and triumphal festivals, and contests of athletes and gladiators. And the cities, in response, celebrated festivals which they called Lucullae, to do honor to the man, and bestowed upon him what is sweeter than honor, their genuine goodwill. But when Appius came, and it was plain that war must be waged against Jogranes, he went back into Pontus, put himself at the head of his soldiers, and laid siege to Sinope, or rather, to the Cilicians who were occupying that city for the king. These slew many of the Sinopians, fired the city, and set on to fly by night. But Lucullus saw what was going on, made his way into the city, and slew eight thousand of the Cilicians who were still there. Then he restored to the city their private property, and ministered to the needs of the city, more especially on account of the following vision. He thought in his sleep that a form stood by his side, and said, Go forward a little, Lucullus, for Autolycus is come, and wishes to meet you. On rising from sleep he was unable to conjecture what the vision meant, but he took the city on that day, and as he pursued the Cilicians who were sailing away, he saw a statue lying on the beach, which the Cilicians had not succeeded in getting on board with them. It was the work of Sthenis, one of his masterpieces. Well then, someone told Lucullus that it was the statue of Autolycus, the founder of Sinope. Now Autolycus is said to have been one of those who made an expedition with Heracles from Thessaly against the Amazons, a son of Demachus. On his voyage of return, in company with Demolion and Phlogis, he lost his ship, which was wrecked at the place called Pedelium, in the Chersonesus. But he himself escaped, with his arms and companions, and coming to Sinope, took the city away from the Syrians. These Syrians who were in possession of the city were descended, as it is said, from Cyrus, the son of Apollo, and Sinope, the daughter of Asopus. On hearing this, Lucullus called to mind the advice of Sulla in his memoirs, which was to think nothing so trustworthy and sure as that which is signified by dreams. Being informed now that Mithridates and Tigranes were on the point of entering Laconia and Cilicia, with the purpose of invading Asia before war was actually declared, he was amazed that the Armenian, if he cherished the design of attacking the Romans, had not made use of Mithridates for this war when he was at the zenith of his power, nor joined forces with him when he was strong, but had allowed him to be crushed and ruined, and now began a war which offered only faint hopes of success, prostrating himself to the level of those who were unable to stand erect. But when Macarus, also, the son of Mithridates, who held the Bosphorus, sent Lucullus a crown valued at a thousand pieces of gold, begging to be included in the list of Rome's friends and allies, Lucullus decided at once that the first war was finished. He therefore left Sornatius there as a guardian of Pontius, with six thousand soldiers, while he himself, with twelve thousand footmen and less than three thousand horse, set out for the second war. He seemed to be making a reckless attack, and one which admitted of no saving calculation, upon warlike nations, countless thousands of horsemen, and a boundless region surrounded by deep rivers and mountains covered with perpetual snow. His soldiers, therefore, who were none too well disciplined in any case, followed him reluctantly and rebelliously, while the popular tribunes at Rome raised an outcry against him, and accused him of seeking one war after another, although the city had no need of them, 
that he might be in perpetual command and never lay down his arms, or cease enriching himself from the public dangers. And in time these men accomplished their purpose. But Lucullus advanced by forced marches to the Euphrates. Here he found the stream swollen and turbid from the winter storms, and was vexed to think of the delay and trouble which it would cost him to collect boats and build rafts. But at evening the stream began to subside, went on diminishing through the night, and at daybreak the river was running between lofty banks. The natives, observing that sundry small islands in the channel had become visible, and that the current near them was quiet, made obeisance to Lucullus, saying that this had seldom happened before, and that the river had voluntarily made itself tame and gentle for Lucullus, and offered him an easy and speedy passage. Accordingly, he took advantage of his opportunity and put his troops across, and a favourable sign accompanied his crossing. Heifers pasture there which are sacred to Persia Artemis, a goddess whom the barbarians on the further side of the Euphrates hold in the highest honour. These heifers are used only for sacrifice, and at other times are left to roam about the country at large, with brands upon them in the shape of the torch of the goddess. Nor is it a slight or easy manner to catch any of them, when they are wanted. One of these heifers, after the army had crossed the Euphrates, came to a certain rock, which is deemed sacred to the goddess, and stood upon it, and lowering its head without any compulsion from the usual rope, offered itself to Lucullus for sacrifice. He also sacrificed a bull to the Euphrates, in acknowledgment of his safe passage. Then, after encamping there during the day, on the next and the succeeding days he advanced through Sophene. He wrought no harm to the inhabitants, who came to meet him and received his army gladly. Nay, when his soldiers wanted to take a certain fortress which was thought to contain much wealth, "'Yonder lies the fortress which we must rather bring low,' said he, pointing to the Taurus in the distance. "'These nearer things are reserved for the victors.' Then he went on by forced marches, crossing the Tigris, and entered Armenia. Since the first messenger who told Tigranus that Lucullus was coming, had his head cut off for his pains, no one else would tell him anything, and so he sat in ignorance while the fires of war were already blazing around him, giving ear only to those who flattered him, and said that Lucullus would not be a great general if he ventured to withstand Tigranus at Ephesus, and did not fly incontinently from Asia at the mere sight of so many myriads of men which only proves that it is not every man who can bear much unmixed wine, nor is it any ordinary understanding that does not lose its reckoning in the midst of great prosperity. The first of his friends who ventured to tell him the truth was Mithrobarzanes, and he too got no very excellent reward for his boldness of speech. He was sent at once against Lucullus with three thousand horsemen and a large force of infantry, under orders to bring the general alive, but to trample his men underfoot. Now, part of the army of Lucullus was already preparing to go into camp, and the rest was still coming up, when his scouts told him that the barbarian was advancing to the attack. Fearing lest the enemy attack his men when they were separated and in disorder, and so throw them into confusion, he himself fell to arranging the encampment, and Sextilius, the legate, was sent at the head of sixteen hundred horsemen and about as many light and heavy infantry, with orders to get near the enemy and wait there until he learned that the main body was safely encamped. Well, then, this was what Sextilius wished to do, but he was forced into an engagement by Mithrobarzanes, who boldly charged upon him. A battle ensued, in which Mithrobarzanes fell fighting, and the rest of his forces took to flight and were cut to pieces, all except a few. Upon these, Tigranes abandoned Tigranocerta, that great city which he had built, withdrew to the Taras, and there began collecting his forces from every quarter. 
Lucullus, however, gave him no time for preparation, but sent out Marina to harass and cut off the forces gathering to join to Granis, and Sextilius again to hold in check a large body of Arabs which was drawing near the king. At one and the same time Sextilius fell upon the Arabs as they were going into camp, and slew most of them, and Marina, following hard upon Tyrannes, seized his opportunity and attacked the king as he was passing through a rough and narrow defile with his army in long column. Tigranes himself fled, abandoning all his baggage, many of the Armenians were slain, and more were captured. End of Lucullus, Part Three.